From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that knows why I didn't get as sick as my wife recently. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Disease Susceptibility. Hey, Chad. How's it going? I am honestly just, <clears throat> it's the start of the school year, and I seem to always get sick right the first day when we have this these new disease vectors coming onto campus. And yeah, I have been dealing that with that in my household as well. RSV took some of us down. And mm. uh, so first week of school, might as well have to call in sick for a day or so. <laughs> <laughs> Right off the bat, we're just kind of stumbling out of the stumbling block. We are stumbling out of the starting blocks around yeah. here. So yeah. I'm going to keep yeah. that, by the way. We're stumbling out of the stumbling blocks. Uh. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So that was part of the impetus of why I thought this would be an interesting thing to talk about today, as well as the fact that if people were paying attention to the news over the summer, they might have heard this idea kind of floating around about how different human populations had differing degrees of susceptibility to COVID, along with the right. conspiratorial suggestion that there was something nefarious going on about that. I don't want to delve into the politics any more than that, but for that reason also, it's been on my mind to try to have a little bit of a conversation about the fact that, yes, human populations do differ in their susceptibility to different diseases, but no, it's not necessarily some sort of dark conspiracy. What I'd like to talk about today is the process by which different populations might have differing degrees of resistance or susceptibility to different diseases, and then some interesting examples. Yeah, and we're going to talk about a couple of different diseases where this has popped up, that different pockets of populations just do better for lots of different reasons. And so mm -hmm. very cool. All right. Where should we yeah. start with this? This might be treading territory that we've already been over before, but I think just to have some evolutionary concepts fresh in our mind, it's worth bringing them up and making sure they're close to hand so that we can apply them to these examples. And so the first idea to put out there is this idea of variation. That is that individuals within a population are distinct one from another. Mm -hmm. And much of that variation is due to genetic differences from one individual to another individual. Well, hold on, Chad. So sure, there are variations. You and I are, are clearly different, but clearly. I would argue a lot of that difference comes from my parents are different from your parents. So that all makes sense without getting into variations through evolutionary change or anything like that. How do we actually get some of these other changes and differences between us? Yeah. So where does that variation, the fact that individuals are variable come from? And as you rightly pointed out, you look very different from me because you inherited genes from your parents and I inherited genes from my parents who are four different people. And so I'm going to be a blend of my parents. You'll be a blend of your parents. And we um, both have big beards <laughs> as a result right, exactly, somehow. Exactly. Maybe, maybe honestly, maybe it's a stretch to suggest that we're very different in appearance. I, I mean, was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe I don't want to overplay that too much, but, but nevertheless. Your parents yeah. passed down the flannel <laughs> shirt, Gene, and I don't really have that as much. Okay, yeah. Um, and so the idea is that different versions of genes arise originally due to genetic mutations, okay? okay? And so that is the wellspring of variation to begin with. Different versions of genes that can then be passed on to offspring might arise by mutations that happen. And so as we said, those genes 
for those traits that build our bodies are inherited from parents to offspring. And in populations of lots of individuals, some individuals leave more descendants than other individuals. And if part of the reason for that unequal number of offspring is due to traits that are genetically inherited, then those traits that build bodies that leave more descendants will become more common generation after generation. And right. the genes for those traits that build bodies that leave fewer descendants will become less and less common through time. The word that describes what I just said is the concept of fitness. Okay, And so that this leads to the accumulation of genes giving higher fitness and the reduction in frequency of genes that result in lower fitness. And the last important concept that we need to have in mind here is that this idea of what is fit, I'm using air quotes here, depends entirely on the environment. And I will and, note that Chad did wave his fingers up in the air as bunny ears. He did the bunny ears when he oh, said fit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I would never not do that. I would never. Yeah. 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 So in two distinct environments, one genotype might do really well in the first, but not the second, while a different genotype might do well in the second, but not as well in the first. And okay. so which genotype has the highest fitness depends a lot on the environment in which those genotypes are expressed. So like maybe an example of fitness would be like whatever changes your body does to handle cold weather. Maybe if you happen to live in a cold weather environment, then you would make those changes and your ancestors would have those changes. And that would be different from people who live in a warm weather environment. Mm -hmm. And so for a species that exists and is broadly distributed across a very diverse set of environmental conditions, the prevailing environmental conditions in one location might be very different from the prevailing environmental conditions in another. And through time, we shouldn't be surprised that those populations might start to look a little bit different, becoming better and better suited to their local conditions. Okay. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today with respect to the environment that makes up the experience of the organism is diseases. And so in addition to all the things that you might immediately think of when I say environment, things like temperature and precipitation and these abiotic factors, another important component of one's environment is the other organisms that you interact with. And hmm. disease organisms are an extremely important category of organisms that we interact with that can have a really strong consequence on the fitness of some organism who becomes infected by a disease organism. Right. And if there is a particular disease, then that might be a part of your environmental conditions that you are evolving with. And that disease might be absent from other places. Okay. Yep. Okay. So I mentioned the concept of where new variations come from being mutations. And so how susceptible or not individuals are to a disease like a bacteria or a virus or uh, some other kind of parasite might be a genetically based trait. And so there might be genes involved with cellular features that allow the disease organism to invade the host or invade the host cells or replicate itself within the host. All of these things that the disease organism is doing make use of the host organism's physiology in some way. And so if there are slightly different genetically based versions of those physiologies that make the disease organism less capable or even incapable of invading and reproducing itself in the host, then we have the basis of a resistant individual or population. 
right? Mm-hmm. And these mutations, they just happen at random and they might happen in a population and somebody happens to be the first person who produces gametes, egg or sperm that has this mutated version and maybe they just don't happen to pass it on to their offspring and then it goes away. It happens, it blips and then it's gone and nobody ever notices. Right. So, I mean, you're talking about heredity that when you have offspring, then generally you're giving half of your traits to your next generation. It's always a, it's like a coin flip basically. So you're saying if if there's no reason to have this change, then it may just die out on its own and no one would notice it. Okay. Yeah. Or or it may just by bad luck might not get passed on, but if it, does happen to get passed on and starts to become present in the population, even at a low, very low frequency, then there are some number of individuals floating around in the population that have this innate resistance to a disease. And they might not even know it because maybe the disease that would be affected by this mutation isn't present, right? Mm. And it's only when that disease makes an appearance in that population that those individuals who just by luck, happen to have the resistant mutant variant Mm -hmm. survive that epidemic better than individuals that do not have that mutated resistant version of the gene. And so this kind of gets back to what I was talking about at the top, where those individuals who had the mutated version giving them some resistance might leave many more offspring than those individuals who were completely susceptible. And so the genes for this resistance become more common and more common and more common generation after generation in the presence of this disease. And so in this case, the disease is acting as a agent of selection on the host population. And so this is all to say that this is a completely natural process. It's simply evolution happening in populations. And the end result is that you end up with this broadly distributed species with little pockets of populations all over its total distribution that might be more or less susceptible to certain diseases based on whether or not certain mutations have happened or not, based on whether or not certain diseases have made their way to that population or not, and imposed selection on that population. So that that's how you get potential differences from one population to another of their susceptibility or resistance to different diseases. So do we have examples of this? Yeah, we have a lot of examples of this. And I thought three particular examples would be interesting to talk about. None of them deal with our recent epidemic of COVID. We'll just set that aside for now, and in part because I think that we're still in the midst of it. And so there's still a lot to learn about COVID and human populations and that kind of thing. So I thought we would talk about these three other examples. And so the first is that, do you remember a few years ago, the big splash in the news about this person who had apparently cured themselves of an HIV infection? I remember we did an episode about curing HIV. Yeah. Yeah, we did. It turns out that there are some people, they're they're very rare, but there are some people who have an innate immunity to HIV. Hmm. And the reason is because the HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, gains entry to the cells that it targets by grabbing 
on to this surface protein, this molecule hanging off the surface of a particular type of cell. We won't get too much into the details, right? This little molecule hanging off the surface of a cell has a certain shape and charge and ability to bind to certain things. And that is the thing that the virus grabs onto and then allows it to gain entry. Okay. Well, it turns out that there are some individuals who have a mutated version of that surface protein and HIV simply can't grab onto it. Hmm. It's as if almost everybody has the same lock and HIV has the appropriate key for that lock. Mm -hmm. But there are a few people who have a different lock and the Hmm. key that HIV is carrying around doesn't fit in that lock. Okay. Okay. As you might imagine, that surface protein, it has a genetic basis and the individuals that produce this version that HIV cannot bind to are genetically distinct from most everybody else who produces surface proteins that HIV can bind to. Okay. So then the question becomes, okay, well, where is this found? Where is it distributed? And what is the evolutionary history of this genetic difference for these individuals? So it turns out that the version of the gene for resistance is much more common. It's most common in very Northern Europe like Northern Europe and up into Scandinavia. And as you move south through Europe, it becomes less and less common by the time you get down to like Italy. So there's something about very Northern Europe where it is more common. And I I should mention that the name of this surface protein is called CCR5. We won't get into what that stands for or anything. Creed is Clearwater Revival. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's their fifth album. The fifth iteration. Yeah. (laughs) CCR5. Yeah. Well, this one has the bathroom on the right. Yeah. The mutated version is the bathroom on the left <laughs> and you know you're not, not gonna bad find moon the rising that yeah so it turns out that historically there have been lots of different plagues things called plague through time And many of those pathogens also gained entry to target cells by grabbing onto that exact same surface molecule, that CCR5 protein, right? And so if we think back to what we were talking about a little bit ago about how a mutation can first arise and then become more common, probably what happened is that in these Northern European populations, a mutation in that the shape and structure of that CCR5 surface protein occurred and was passed on to some descendants, perhaps for a generation or two. And those individuals, it's entirely possible that they were not benefited nor harmed by carrying around this mutated version, that it might have been completely neutral as far as they were concerned. But because it had stuck around and had been passed on to a few, some number of descendants, when the next round of a plague epidemic did arrive, those individuals who just happened to have the mutated version that the pathogen couldn't grab onto survived at a much higher rate. So you're saying that we probably have this on all of our cells, have a bunch of, you called them a lock. So I'm imagining like we have a bike lock and a pad lock and a combination (laughs) lock and all these different. That's a good analogy. Yeah. There are lots of different locks on all of our cells. Yeah. And we need them because sometimes we get a delivery of water and that you use this one lock for the water. And then you use this other lock for some protein that you actually, that you need or something like that. And maybe Mm -hmm. you're, you're spitting out other stuff. And so you have a lot of different locks that are there for a lot of different purposes. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that HIV happens to be targeting the exact same lock that a plague that swept through Northern Europe at some point was using to gain access to some of our cells. Right. Okay. So then that would mean that because they'd already been exposed to this, the ones who had this mutation just had a higher probability of surviving. And so that is still 
a remnant in northern European countries where they still have that different lock that does mm-hmm. the same function, but it's a different lock so that when HIV tries to come in and they're just not able to get into that. Yes. And in fact, it was probably not just a single round of a plague that swept through northern Europe, mm. because if it only happened one time many hundreds of years ago, maybe it would have made a little bit of a difference like in the short term, but perhaps not as pronounced as we see still around today. And so the thinking is that it was probably because of repeated rounds of epidemics for mm. hundreds and hundreds of years of a similar kind of pathogen targeting the same kind of entrance lock into their host cells that you can imagine with each new round of the epidemic hitting the population, it would weed out those individuals that had the lock that it could open mm-hmm. and it would favor the, the individuals who the pathogen could not open its lock would then survive and then leave more descendants passing it on. All right. So there we see we've got a human population that is distinct in its susceptibility to a disease. There's no conspiracy here. It's just a result of their evolutionary history. Another example is smallpox. So smallpox originated probably many hundreds to perhaps several thousands of years ago. It perhaps originated in either Africa or Asia somewhere. There was trade among those populations at the time. And so wherever it originated, it would have been passed around and gone along these trade routes. And it spread from there into Europe as well. And so through probably thousands of years, smallpox would come in epidemic waves as well and wipe out large portions of the population. And those individuals who had a slight genetic distinction that made them more resistant left more descendants and everybody else left fewer descendants. And even after those hundreds to thousands of years of repeated rounds of epidemics selecting for resistance to smallpox, the death rate for European populations was still as high as 30%. So it was an incredibly dangerous disease. But because of those repeated rounds of selection, the European populations had a little bit more resistance to it than other populations who had never encountered it Ever. So fast forward to contact of the old world to the new world, late 1400s, early 1500s, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I do remember that. Right. With the Nina, so, the Pinta, the Santa Maria. That's right. And by the early 1500s, like by the 1510s, probably, smallpox had already made it to the Caribbean and then from there over into Mexico, brought by. Spanish conquistadors and early colonists. And it wiped out large portions of the indigenous populations for whom this was their first experience of smallpox. Mm. And so they didn't have the benefit of many hundreds to possibly thousands of years of evolving resistance, Mm -hmm. they were completely susceptible to it. Certain indigenous groups were from 50% death rates all the way up to like 90% death rates from smallpox. And that's just one of many diseases that were old world in their origin that got brought over. So things like certain kinds of flus and measles, you know, were the indigenous people in North and South America had no exposure for tens of thousands of years to those diseases and so therefore had no immunity. This really strikes me. I mean, we've talked a lot about invasive species before. uh Uh-huh. And the way you're speaking about this now is helping me recognize it as, I mean, that's exactly what's happening when we have murder hornets coming over or when we have (laughs) whatever the yeast was that 
is killing off the frogs and all these other things where something is being introduced to a new population that they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And they're just not ready for it. Yeah, this is I think we had an episode on Emerald Ash Borer like a year or so ago, right, that recently got introduced to Oregon last summer. And we talked about in that episode, how the ash trees out here in Oregon are totally susceptible to it. But where the emerald ash borer originated, it damages their ash trees, but not nearly to the extent that ours in North America have been damaged by it. Mm. So it's the exact same concept. And then the last one that I thought would be interesting to talk about is sickle cell anemia and its relation to the disease malaria. Uh-huh. And so here, this is an kind of an interesting different case from the two we've just talked about. The disease sickle cell anemia is not a transmissible disease. It is a genetic disease. Okay. And so individuals who have sickle cell anemia inherit genes that produce the hemoglobin in the red blood cells that results in those red blood cells taking on kind of a crescent moon or a puckered shape or sickle. A sickle. A sickle shape, right? And The problem with that is that around like sharp corners or narrow little tiny capillaries, the big kind of pillowy normal shaped red blood cells have an easy time sort of blundering their way through those tight spots. But these sickle shapes kind of like get hung up Mm. and then another one will get hung up and then another one and another one. And so you'll often have circulatory problems with sickle cell anemia to the extent that it can be extremely debilitating and life shortening for people who suffer from it. Yeah, I've known people who who have had it and they they have to take medication their entire lives and Mhm. Yeah, do you remember the hip hop group TLC? Oh yeah. Uh, um, Don't go chasing waterfalls. So one of the members of TLC actually has been vocal about her struggles with sickle cell disease hmm. and uh, advocating for research and care and cures. Yeah, so there is a gene that is responsible for part of the shape of your hemoglobin. And the normal version of it results in normal shaped red blood cells. And the sickle cell version of it results in those sickle shaped cells. So individuals that do not have any copies of the sickle cell gene Mm -hmm. just produce perfectly normal red blood cells. The individuals who have two copies of the sickled version of the gene suffer the worst of the debilitating effects of sickle cell disease. Individuals who are heterozygotes, that is, they have one normal copy and one sickled copy, may have some of the complications, but typically are still can lead normal lives and and are okay. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. So you're saying hemoglobin, but basically you just mean we're just talking about the red blood cells, right? Yeah. And red blood cells are the the cells in our blood that move oxygen from our lungs out to the periphery of all of our cells and and all the things and then back. And normally the shape of our red blood cells are sort of a, it's normally sort of a donut, but with it's solid. It's not, sort pinched, of all the, it's not pinched all the way through. If you yeah. imagine like one of those glazed donuts that, that still has a little bit of dough in the middle. Yeah. And those are rounded all on all shapes, you're saying. And so they're able to get through some tight spots. Mm-hmm. But with this mutation, then they're not quite shaped like a donut anymore. They're more, more ovular. Yeah. So... The heterozygotes, the ones that have the one normal allele and one sickle allele, they actually produce both normal and the abnormal 
hemoglobin, but oh, okay. But because their body is still producing enough of the normal hemoglobin, that's enough so that the majority of their red blood cells still take on a normal shape. Ah, so with this mutation, then those red blood cells are oddly shaped and are apt to get stuck in places you don't want them to get stuck. Mm -hmm. If you have, you said the heterozygote, then roughly half of your red blood cells will be of this type and half of them will be the normal shape. It's probably not a full half. It's probably results in a lot fewer than half because within any given red blood cell, there are both genes active, producing a bunch of normal hemoglobin and then some abnormal hemoglobin. And so if an individual red blood cell has enough of the normal hemoglobin being made, then that red blood cell will take on a more or less normal shape. Oh. And if it just so happens that a red blood cell as it's being produced has sufficient abnormal hemoglobin being produced, then it will take on that sickle shape. So it, typically people who are heterozygotes, they might be completely asymptomatic because so few of their cells are sickled in their shape. Okay. But occasionally people who are heterozygotes will have some complications if enough of those sickled cells are produced. But that is much less common than an individual who has full-on homozygous, both copies producing abnormal hemoglobin. Right. And so this is, again, about genetics so that, you know, you do the, what are the Punnett square? Is that what that's called? Yeah. So I, I have this mental picture here, and this is terrible to do in a podcast. And But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so like the mother has normal and sickle, uh -huh. two possibilities that she could pass on to the next generation. And the uh -huh. father has a normal and a sickle that uh -huh. pass on. And so if they both pass on the normal, then that one offspring would have totally normal blood, right? Mm -hmm. They could both pass on the sickle and it's a coin flip. It's totally random what each of them are doing. Mm -hmm. And if they do that, then they, their offspring has the full sickle cell anemia and, and that whole disease. Right. But then there's also the cases where maybe the mother gives sickle, but the father gives normal or where the father gives sickle and the mother gives normal, mm -hmm. where the offspring would have a mixture of these two. Right. And yeah. they'd be called a heterozygote, you're saying. Right. And they would have what is referred to as a sickle cell trait. All right. So, so, so far we've, we've just been talking about this genetic disease that's inherited from parent to offspring. And so you might be wondering, well, okay, if you've got three options, individuals with perfectly normal blood, mm -hmm. individuals with mostly normal blood, maybe, maybe a few complications and individuals with debilitating complications, mm -hmm. why wouldn't it be the case that the gene that produces perhaps not as great and very bad genotypes, why wouldn't that just be gone? Mm. And the reason is, and this gets back to the earlier point, that the environment in which genes are being expressed matters a lot. And okay. it turns out that individuals who are heterozygous are resistant to malaria. And so in regions of the world where malaria is prevalent and causes all kinds of complications and including death and reduced fitness, heterozygotes actually have an advantage relative to homozygotes who do not have one of the sickle cell versions. Mm. Because the individual that 
just produces completely normal hemoglobin is that genotype, they are totally susceptible to malaria. And, the... and so what is, what is malaria? Oh, so malaria is a single-celled parasite. It is transmitted by mosquitoes, a certain kind of mosquito as a vector. Mm. So malaria is a really serious disease that kills upwards of a million people globally still annually. And, it, you know, a person who doesn't die from malaria can still suffer lifelong debilitating consequences of having malaria, had malaria. So it's a very serious disease. And that brings into focus the selective environment that these populations with this sickle cell gene are living in. And so you've, on the one hand, you've got this genetic disease that if you are unfortunate in the genetic lottery and you inherit two of the bad copies, you have a really tough time. But if you inherit two of the normal copies, now you're susceptible to this mosquito-borne disease. And so and, the malaria must attack your red blood cells. Yes, it does. There's something about the sickle cell version of the hemoglobin that makes the malaria parasite less able or unable to invade those red blood cells. Hmm, interesting. Okay. And so this all stems from apparently just one mutation somewhere in your hemoglobin. Right. Okay. So how common is that then? So is it possible, like someone who lives up in the far away from where malaria is, is it possible for them to have this same mutation? Possible, but much, much, much less likely. Okay. And so what you're bringing back is this idea that the prevalence of a certain version of a gene is going to differ between two populations based on the selective environment that those two populations have experienced for generation after generation after generation. Mm. And so that is why we find sickle cell gene and sickle cell disease much more prevalent in African populations and African American populations because they have ancestors who were located in these malarial zones hmm. that would have experienced probably hundreds to thousands of years of selection favoring this heterozygous advantage, hmm. as opposed to other human populations like European who were not in a malarial zone. All right. So we have three examples here of diseases where location seem to make some difference or for whatever reason that there are pockets of individuals who just fare better against this disease. Mm -hmm. But in all of these cases, I'd say by way of kind of closing out, natural variation in susceptibility to diseases occurs all the time and happens through completely natural processes. There's no nefarious worldwide cabal of bad actors who is intentionally creating diseases that target some individuals versus other individuals. Mm. We don't need to invoke a shadow conspiracy to understand why some diseases and perhaps even COVID, right? It's not crazy to suggest that not everybody is equally susceptible or resistant to COVID. That's not a crazy thing to say. Well, we yeah, I mean, since COVID did start, I mean, the conspiracy that we're dancing around because we didn't want to give it more energy than it needed. But there is evidence that people in China are less susceptible to COVID than other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But because COVID did start in China, it would seem reasonable that maybe they already had some previous disease that was related to an early predecessor of COVID or something like that, which would make them less susceptible at this point. Yeah, research is very much ongoing and it's an open question, but I wouldn't be shocked to learn that perhaps it's a population that has experienced a lot of similar kinds of viruses attacking that population and the same kinds of evolutionary processes that we've just described, perhaps that's been going on with respect to that disease in that part of the world. Yeah, okay. So 
I guess I won't believe this one conspiracy then. <laughs> well, then, if that's the case, I've done my work. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or questions that we should address, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. 